Welcome to this first Advent service as we continue our series in Ecclesiastes. We've got this, uh, this passage and one more, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning at verse 7. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that uh, by your Spirit, and Father, we don't just say those words. It's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. We know that we have all been busy with family activities or celebrations of one kind or another. And yet, uh, every time we gather, we wish to ask for the work of your Spirit, uh, for you, Jesus, to be honored. And uh, for I pray, Father, that your people would be encouraged and that those who don't yet know you would be touched by your Spirit and their eyes opened. So we come now to your word and we ask for you to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and I'm just going to read the end uh, of this uh, chapter. We're looking at at chapters 10 and 11, but I'm just reading from verse 7 to 10 of chapter 11. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Do please sit down. Well, this is not what you would call the traditional Christmas reading, and uh, we'll study it in a moment. I just wanted to underline uh, for us the opportunities as a church that this season uh, gives us to invite friends to church, and uh, there are many opportunities that we have coming up, and two in particular we're thinking about as church-wide guest events, and the next one coming up is December the 11th, the carol service, and I've heard sometimes before people have come and they've said, wow, if only I'd known it was like this, I would have invited a friend. Well, now you know. Uh, God willing, it's going to be a great opportunity to invite friends to church. So December the 11th, our carol service in the evening. Well, the passage we have in front of us this morning is all about growing up. Someone once said, you never really grow up, you only learn how to act in public. (laughs) I rather like that, you know. But strangely enough, though, today you wonder whether people even want to look like they've grown up or grow up at all. Of course, the fountain of eternal youth, uh, this passage concludes with thinking about youth, the fountain of eternal youth has always been a fascination for people. Actually, legend has it, one legend has it, that it's found in India, if you will believe that. And, and apparently, some historians think that the Spanish explorer Ponce de Leon was motivated by trying to find the fountain of eternal youth when he uh, attempted to discover the secrets of the new world in America. So it's always been there, this issue of youth and what it really means to grow up and how you do that. But uh, some would say that a contemporary fascination with staying young has reached new and maybe even alarming proportions. 
Uh, take as an extreme example the late Michael Jackson. Jackson, of course, had uh, extensive plastic surgery throughout the years, eventually appearing quite different from his former self. And one time it was fairly easy to joke about Jackson's oddity. His single bad was uh, covered with a tongue-in-cheek version called mad one time. You, you may know, uh, which is, of course, not kind, but, you know, people were joking at the time. Yet some thought his fixation with changing his appearance to maintain the face of youth, however grossly unsuccessful it may have been, was, they began to wonder, perhaps only a, deeper, only a sign of a deeper psychosis about childhood and youth. When on trial, the prosecution produced an evidence a book discovered in a locked cabinet in Jackson's bedroom, which had, it is thought, in Jackson's handwriting, an inscription honing the joy of boyhood displayed, a simple childhood which, the writing said, he had never had. And Paul Therrow, who interviewed uh, Jackson, described a surprising telephone call from him in the middle of the night, and he wrote an article about it in one newspaper. And he said, at some point, Michael, as in Michael Jackson's use of the phrase, lost childhood, prompted me to quote the line from George William Russell, in the lost boyhood of Judas, Christ was betrayed. And he says he heard on the other end of the phone from Jackson, wow. You see, with more and more parents abandoning their children into the professional arms of child care and fathers pursuing their careers, mothers theirs, fathers absentee or irresponsible, mothers even sometimes likewise, is it any wonder that our society seems nearly psychotically unable to grow up? Jackson had an unusual childhood, of course, driven by his father as a commercial product for stardom, yet even more broadly and of course more mildly much of Western society is witnessing a similar crisis of the child. Where's our childhood gone? Where's the simple elegance and innocence of childhood of bygone eras? And is it any wonder when we finally do attain chronological adulthood that we feel impaired uh, psychologically, morally, even spiritually from being mature? In a talk in New York before he died, Christian leader John Stott, soon after he'd been declared by Time magazine one of the hundred most influential people in the world, said that in his view, the challenge facing the contemporary Christian church was growth without maturity. And if that is right, it is possible the church is simply reflecting a far more serious malaise in secular society. We want to stay young. We do not want responsibility. We shy away from commitment. We find it hard to develop long-lasting and emotionally supportive friendships. We have makeovers and Botox. We, we run away from being tied down. We look for quick thrills and instant pleasure. We are basically kids. The church in many parts of the world is booming. It is growing, unlike any other religion today, actually, by uh, proclamation, not procreation, growing hundreds of thousands a day. Yet its growth in numbers is not kept pace by a growth in depth, either in terms of doctrine or lifestyle, 
And perhaps we are just too frequently reflecting the quick fix mentality of an adolescent world. And if any of that analysis has any substance at all, then the passages we're looking at this morning are of paramount importance. For some time now, Ecclesiastes has been attempting to wean us off the lie that the secular world is really the best life that there is. He has exposed its hopes and dreams as shallow, at best, and at worst, deeply delusory about the real state of life, its unpredictability, its end, its under-the-sun nature, its frustrating quality without meaning. Now, there's some of this again in the text in front of us this morning, but now, primarily, Ecclesiastes is beginning to move to an alternative proposition. Instead of showing this this pseudo-wisdom of the world up for the fake that it is, he's now beginning to offer us the wisdom from God. And in particular, he's uh, he's hoping to help us grow up. I call this originally man-to-man talk, but it might as well be called woman-to-woman. The accent is on the adults, not the boy or girl, but the man and the woman. So if you want to grow up or help others grow up, listen to this. Growing up comes from wising up. How? First be sensible. (laughs) Now, this is really a a summary, at least my summary, of the entire chapter 10, and we don't have time to go into all of it in detail, but if you would scan your eye down now, that chapter, I think you can see that it's a series of brief instructions interleaved with some of uh, Ecclesiastes' typical under-the-sun kind of observations about the futility of life and all that. And the gist of it all, can you see, is this desire to get the reader or the listener to hear these maxims that he's throwing out there in his discourse, uh, to hear them and then be more sensible as a result. So, for instance, if you look at, look at chapter 10, verse 4, if you have a Bible. He says there, one of these maxims that he throws out, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Well, that's uh, an acute observation about how to deal with your boss, isn't it? Ecclesiastes is telling us not to go off in a huff. You know, it may seem morally superior to pick up your marbles and go home when you're annoyed. But the wise course, he is saying, is not to leave your place, to stick to your job and be calm. It may not feel exciting. There may be more excitement in the fireworks of a good argument. But he's saying it's more sensible and frankly, more adult. Well, look at chapter 10, verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Again, that's a, a, a sort of finely tuned observation and piece of instruction. You can imagine, can't you, someone trying to cut down a tree with a blunt axe and all the weight and effort that that could be saved if first he would stop and put the time in to sharpen the axe. And so these are two principles of great importance in growing up. Calmness, not huffiness. Preparation, not just determination. Measure once, cut twice. Measure twice, cut once. Well, look at chapter 10, verse 18. 
Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Again, a simple comment with a punch packed behind it. The wise person will work hard. And Ecclesiastes is urging upon us diligence, not laziness. He's saying, look at those rafters. Do you really want that? Put the hours in and stop the leak. In other words, what Ecclesiastes is telling us is that Christian maturity requires the wisdom to choose the right path, to be calm, not huffy, to be prepared, not just determined, to be diligent, not lazy. The wisdom he is offering is based upon the truth that God made the universe and all of us. There is a basic order to life, a creation order, which if we follow, if we wise up to, all other things being equal, we will do well and gradually attain maturity. And Christian maturity recognizes this. It's not sectarian and tending towards making decisions on hunches alone. It is maturely responsible in the face of life's creation realities. There was a story of an evangelist who discovered that a particular Christian group were having trouble witnessing to the latest Eastern guru development of a new age kind in their particular neighborhood. And he came along and found that this Christian group was saying to those who are attracted to this newfangled Eastern mysticism, in effect, Our experience is better than yours. But they weren't getting very far because, in actual fact, all the guru was saying in return was, well, no, our experience is better. And they never thought to say, instead, we have the truth. They never thought to apply sensible, godly reason. And Christian groups all over the world rarely do so nowadays. Yet the Bible has a lot of wisdom to offer. It's not just for evangelism. Take the issue of guidance. How am I to know what God wants from me? Am I to go with what feels peaceful? Or am I to follow what the Bible says even if it leaves me in emotional turmoil as I face the reality that something God wants me to do is not something that I want? What about those areas of life that the Bible does not specifically address, you may say? Well, here is the path of wisdom. First, be sensible in a godly sense. Now, second, be bold. Be bold. And so if Christian maturity requires the wisdom to choose the right path, it also requires the wisdom to actually get on and do the right thing. There's no wisdom in just sort of sitting around and sitting on our hands, as it were. Christian maturity is not just talking about being mature. There is a need for action, for bold action at times, according to Ecclesiastes. Now, this is really what chapter 11, verses 1 to 6 are all about. As you look at that, you'll see there's some very unusual imagery there. But the basic point is all of this, be bold. So look at verses Uh, 1 and 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you find it after many days. Just chuck it out there, he's saying. Cast your bread upon the waters. Scholars have disputed what this casting your bread upon the waters actually means, 
But whatever its precise original um, genre or idiom, its meaning is clearly explained by the next verse, which is, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So what's he saying? He's saying, don't think by hoarding your bread, your reserves, you're actually playing it safe. No, really. It's far better to take some risks to give away your bread, your, your reserves, to be charitable, to help others, invest in some spiritual project or other. Use your resources. Don't just sit on your nest egg. Why? Because you never know when those reserves will be blown away by inflation or zero interest. It's pretty relevant, the Bible, isn't it? Or, or you'll lose your job or whatever. And then you will need the best investment of all, which is the investment in other people. Casting your bread upon the waters. Well, that seems pointless. And maybe giving to charities and charitable needs, maybe that appears sometimes a waste. But he's saying the return will come back to you one way or another. Well, look at verses 3 to 4. Again, a boldness of action. He says there, If the clouds are full of rain and they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now, that seems to be mind-numbingly obvious. You know, thanks very much. We all know this. When a tree falls down, it falls down. When the clouds are rain clouds, they rain those clouds, you know. But the point is, equally obviously, he says, so verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. He's talking about boldness. There comes a moment when you just have to get on with it. You can't sit there forever trying to predict the perfect weather pattern by watching the sky. He's saying, just so, take a risk, get on with it. We've had then daring initiative, not hoarding, action, not eternal contemplation. And then he has, again, relevantly perhaps, hedging your investment, not putting all your eggs in one basket. Look at verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Well, it's a form of hedging your investments, isn't it? It's saying, come on, do this here and that there. You're not sure what's going to succeed, or maybe both. So don't put all your eggs in one basket or stock, you know. See, boldness requires confidence, and confidence is a quality that in our success-obsessed age, many of us find hard to... To, to experience perhaps, or conversely, we project in such an extreme way that it's almost equally detrimental and betrays a similar lack of personal security, perhaps from our childhood. So how can we be confident to take action and not sit on our hands worrying about whether we will succeed? Ecclesiastes tells us it's partly a matter of facing some adult's realities. Okay, so hoarding your finances may appear safer, 
But in reality, investing these things, time or money or emotional friendship, in other people actually multiplies the talents. And once we put it like that, we're immediately reminded of Jesus' teaching about the talents, aren't we? And how important it is to multiply them, not to bury them. Or, or as he puts it here, don't look at the clouds or you'll never sow. Make some decisions. Put your shoulder to the wheel. Get on with it. Be bold. And if you're still worried, make sure you spread your investments. Have, have, have this way or that. Don't put all your money in one stock, we might say today. Now, of course, there's some spiritual immediate relevance as well to the call to be bold. For instance, we have seminars and programs and sermons about evangelism. But at roots, I wonder whether our failure to witness is really a lack of boldness. Perhaps some of this applies there too. Sow the word. Don't watch always whether the time is right or not. Get on with it. Spread it around. Some of it will come back. You could be sure. So with the, you know, the December 11th carol service coming up, don't forever be watching for just the perfect moment. You know. And then, of course, there's an understandable tendency in all of our relationships to avoid conflict and even confrontation. But, of course, confrontation is not the same as conflict, and conflict often emerges from lack of honest confrontation. Hence the New Testament says boldly, speak the truth in love. There are times to go and say what you mean and mean what you say out of love's sake and in a loving way, even if, yes, that means being bold. That's what it means to grow up, to take those kind of risks sometimes. Third, wising up by growing up is not only a matter of be sensible, nor only of be bold, but also of be joyful. Now then look down with me at these verses at the end of chapter 11, which we read out to begin with. And at first glance, they are not auspiciously cheerful, are they? After all, they mention death, judgment, and the brevity of youth, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. And that would be enough to put a downer on most parties, I think. And yet, did you also notice when we read it out that joy is mentioned at the same time throughout the verses? There's liberty to do what your heart pleases, pleasure, impersonal fulfillment, and the rest. How do those two go together? Well, to understand how on earth Ecclesiastes could find these kind of thoughts Uh, inspirational of joy, some have referred to a rather obscure Egyptian custom. Apparently, at parties in ancient Egypt, it was not uncommon to bring to the party, if you can believe it, an effigy of a corpse. And this dead man or woman would sit there with the revelers. They would have a chair set aside for him or her and And the idea was not to dampen the enthusiasm, but actually to stoke it up to yet greater heights for the thinking went, eat, drink, and be merry, 
for tomorrow we die. You can see. <laughs> and so some have said, is, is this the kind of thing that Ecclesiastes is doing? Personally, I think not. I, I think he's not, it, it seems to me if he was doing that, it's a little too close to some sort of bizarre ritual worthy of a hazing incident at a secret society, you know. No, I think what he's doing is he's, again, it's in the context of the Old Testament, I understand that, without the fullness of our understanding of eternity on the other side of the resurrection, but I think he's pointing us towards eternity. See, Christians have often been accused of wasting this life for their fixation on the next, haven't they? In reality, however, it is almost impossible to enjoy this life outside of profound self-deception when uncertainty looms about the next. Truly, I think he is saying, only those with a secure vision about death and judgment and all the rest, only those with a secure vision about the world to come are able to enjoy this world. It's not pie in the sky, it's steak on your plate while you wait, you know, he's saying. See, that's what he's talking about in verses 7 and 8, can you see? Light is sweet, he says, and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice them all. That's a very, you know, natural kind of advice, but he carries on. Let him remember the days of darkness. Well, depending on your vision of eternity, that's either a profound downer or actually an encouragement to rejoice. Or look at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that, he carries on. So you've got the kind of standard advice. Then, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into a judgment. Again, that's either a profound downer on someone actually enjoying their life or, depending on your vision of eternity, an encouragement to be able to rejoice in your youth. It, ta- it takes a confident vision of being acquitted before God's judgment seat to enjoy this life. You see, it's in this hope that we can. Look at verse 10. Perhaps you're feeling not so much young, but a little bit older. Verse 10, remove anxiety from our heart and put away pain from our body. It's in the hope of the resurrection of the new, the new body, you see. And I, I know I'm connecting some dots here to the, the resurrection, but I think he's opening up that category How can you rejoice in this life when there is darkness to come? Answer, only if you're confident that actually there is a new heaven and a new earth. You see, it may be in fact that the extent of our joy now is going to be defined by the confidence of our hope in heaven then. Or what we think about Advent you might say. Perhaps if we tend towards being morose or we find it hard to rejoice, 
or we're always talking about this ache or this pain in our body. Could it be, my friend, and you know, for me as well as for you, could it be that our vision of the future is not as unclouded as in Christian maturity it can be? Actually, we can rejoice in all of life. It's not just this sort of escapism of Sunday morning praise with the, you know, the choir or the music or the, the Christmas lights or the candle. Oh, I, I had a good experience that Sunday. Now I can survive till next, you know. No, when you have this secure vision of the future, the whole of your life becomes, as it were, genetically encoded with joy. If you uh, paid a visit to the historic market town of Chester in England and you walked into one of its museums, you might happen to stumble across a rather unusual exhibit. In a glass case there is a complete skeleton of a Roman slave. His body had been thrown down a deep well, which was then covered over with rubble when the third century Uh, hostelry, which was presumably where he had worked, burnt down. That's in one glass case. And then right next to it is another glass case. And this time containing not a body, but an altar, on which is inscribed the words, To the Divine Emperor Augustus. Right next to each other. And there you have, in a nutshell, why so many people are immature. On the one hand, we tend to view ourselves, or others project upon us, that we are no more than trash to be disposed of, like that slave who was unceremonially dumped down a well once his use was was gone. On the other hand... We're tempted to view ourselves as nearly divinely self-important. Who are you to speak the truth and love to me? We construct altars to our persona, having extreme makeovers to preserve our vitality, worshipping the God within You see, Christian maturity actually requires a fundamentally different view about life, each other, and preeminently God. What is that? Well, in Christ, we are redeemed from slavery to the freedom of God's own Son, yet we worship not ourselves but God who made us. And so at roots, when you really get down to bed rock reality, I wonder whether our social fixation with youth is our most prevalent idolatry. It permeates its way into the church, 
by means of hypnotizing images on TV or the internet or other media. I'm not saying never watch TV, I'm just saying the basic message. And thereby has this tendency to persuade us that we, or others, are merely stuff for our pleasure. Or that we or others are practically divine. But if we are to be mature, well then we've got to have a, a gospel look at ourselves. The truth in love. God is the creator. We are not. This world is fallen, yet in Christ we are redeemed and you are of infinite eternal value in his eyes. And see, once you begin to think of it in these gospel terms, the texts we have in front of us, paradoxically, of course then, the very first step to growing up by wising up is not boldness or being sensible or even rejoicing with great joy. The very first step to enter the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus, is to become as a little child. Paradoxically, the very first step to maturity then is actually the humility to realize that you need it. However old or young physically you may be, whether grandpa or grandchild or anywhere in between, The very first step is the recognition of who I am and who God is, who made me and for whom I was made. And with that comes all the wisdom of joy and maturity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes that we look at and we wonder why it's there sometimes and then we find it speaks so clearly to contemporary realities. And we pray, Father, that all of us, I and every single person here, would continue to grow in the grace of God. For We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.